We're talking Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean analyzing the Bills' pass catchers and defensive back seven with special guest Bruce Nolan today on Locked On Bills. You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino, author of Go Bills and Buffalo's Run, also the co-host of the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. I want to thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day, and a big welcome and shout-out to our everydayers. You know who you are. Those of you who never miss a single episode, I appreciate y'all being here very, very much. I'd also like to invite you to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're part of the Locked On Podcast Network your team every day. Today's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code LOCKEDONNFL for $20 off your first purchase. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Well, folks, I promised another guest, and that's exactly what we have today. It's Bruce Nolan from the Bruce Exclusive Podcast, part of the Buffalo Rumblings podcast feed. And I love every conversation that I have with Bruce Nolan. His podcast is a priority of my week, and he's here right now. Bruce, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. It's it's always a it's a tradition now for having me on the bye week and having these discussions. It just feels like this bye week is a little different than the previous bye weeks that we've had over the last couple of years. So I'm excited to get into it. Excited to get into Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, and some perimeter offensive and defensive players. I am too. And I don't want to waste any time because I want, I got, I love talking to you and let's get to it. And let me start by saying something that might surprise some people. I am a fan of songwriting. I love songwriting. I like listening to songwriters discuss songs and their inspirations behind writing songs. And one thing that I hear a lot from songwriters when commenting on songs they didn't write is that they say, I wish I would have wrote that song. And Bruce, listening to your podcast, I find myself saying that a lot. I find myself saying, I wish I could explain that just like Bruce did after I just listened to you say something. And the most recent example of that is this past week, last Thursday, when you talked about Sean McDermott, you used that word inevitable. I loved it. And so if you can kind of get into some of those highlights, Sean McDermott, end of game aggressiveness, how that's rooted in his defense making a play, and then just some thoughts about Sean McDermott and why he resorts to the things that he does in those moments philosophically. First off, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. I was really proud of that. the show last week. I've gotten some wonderful feedback on it. And overall, the arcing discussion was about the fact that we potentially mislabel someone who's aggressive defensively as someone who's conservative. I think we mislabel these concepts. I think conservative is the idea that the most important priority for your team is to not make a mistake. Someone who's aggressive defensively is someone who believes the most important thing we can do in these crunch moments, in these high leverage situations, is create an offensive mistake. And that's the reason why you see multiple times this year when Sean McDermott is now in charge of defensive play calling, the idea that hey, in these high leverage moments, we're bringing the house, right? We've seen cover zero blitzes. We've seen him bring pressure in high leverage moments because he says, I want to force the issue. And this is not a 
a subjective take on my part. He's admitted this in press conferences. Mm -hmm. In these moments, I want to force the issue on the offense. That's aggressiveness. It's just not offensive aggressiveness. It's defensive aggressiveness. And so I think we need to reframe the way that we're criticizing Sean McDermott. Now, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't criticize aggressive defensive coaches the same way you would criticize conservative coaches, but it's a different flaw. And it's a different flaw specifically when you have Josh Allen. And so the conversation that we had around Sean McDermott was that aggressive defensive coaches are not intrinsically a, a bad thing. But the reason you would do that is because you don't have Josh Allen. You are forced to force the issue on the opposing offense. You're forced to try and close out the game with a big defensive play because you don't have the franchise quarterback to fall back on. All the teams out there who are forced to try and close out a game with their defense are hoping to themselves, gosh, you know, if I had the guy under center, I wouldn't have to do this, mm -hmm. right? If I could just trade up and get a guy and have him be the dude and sign him to a massive deal and think, we're okay now at that spot for the next 10 to 15 years, then I wouldn't have to do this. The problem comes when you have that guy and you still feel the need to do it. And that is my criticism for Sean McDermott. The idea that it's a, it's almost a control freak tendency. It's the idea that I've got the play call. I will make this play, right? I will call the right defensive play in the right moment to win this game for this team. And it's not the, Hey, I've got the dude and I trust that my dude and my offensive play caller, both of whom I don't have as much control over as I do, right? I don't trust that they're going to make the play to win the game. So I'm not going to utilize the resources that I have to better support the things I have less control over. I'm going to utilize the resources I have to better support the thing I have more control over, which in this case is the defense. And so that's the criticism. And I think it's a very valid one because we've seen this from Sean McDermott before. And it's not about who's calling plays. This is not a unique thing to Joe Brady. It's not a unique thing to Ken Dorsey. This is a situation that you've seen from Sean McDermott frequently. And we can talk about how his defense has not held up in those moments. And we can identify singular instances like last year, Kansas City regular season when it did. But the fact that it's not about whether or not it works or whether it doesn't work. It's the fact that he feels like it needs to. That's the thing that we should talk about. The fact that he believes that that's the more important priority. Why is it more important priority? Because he has limited resources. He had those timeouts, right? And priorities are revealed through a limited resource environment, right? If you have unlimited timeouts, it doesn't matter what you spend them on. Mm -hmm. But we live in a limited resource environment. He lives in a limited resource environment. He has time and timeouts. And he chose to use them to not support the offense and Josh Allen to try and win that. And so I think philosophically, that's the criticism that I had. And that's what I elaborated on in the pod. And I loved it. And the reality is I agree with you and it feels detrimental to this football team. You know, you and I have both spent time discussing the various aspects of an NFL head coach and how they have strengths and weaknesses, just like a player would have strengths and weaknesses. And very, very rarely, if ever, is a head coach great at everything? And so with that in mind, what would you classify Sean McDermott's biggest strengths and weaknesses are? And for this current Buffalo Bills team and moving forward, what traits are most important? I think that Sean McDermott is a program builder. I think he's a culture builder. I think he's a get-up-off-the-mat guy. I think sometimes 
I'm thinking of, of around the league, a, a program like the Washington Commanders, who could very much use a coach like Sean McDermott, a get-up-off-the-mat guy, the coach that they thought they had in Ron Rivera. I think Sean McDermott is a, a better version, in my opinion, of Ron Rivera. But when you need to get up off the mat, when you need to get started, get going, you need a plan, you need consistency in message, and you need consistency in execution. Those are the three things you need to get up off the mat. You can't have these people come in with a bad idea of a plan. Sean McDermott, famous for the gigantic binder that he brought to his interview with the Pagulas, right? He had a plan. He has consistency in messaging. Now, we can talk about the specific type of messaging, but mm -hmm. he has consistency in messaging. And he has consistency in execution. We may not like it, but it's consistency in execution. It's one of the reasons why we can feel comfortable with specific criticisms is because they occur consistently. And so those are the things you need as an organization to get up off the mat. That's the type of coach that you need, and I think it's the type of coach that Sean McDermott. I think he's a drop breaker. I think he was going to break the drought eventually, regardless of whether or not they would have hit a couple lucky bounces in 2017. I think he was going to break it in 2019 with Josh Allen. And if he didn't, he was going to break it in 2020. Now, I think that it doesn't really matter that he, you know, got there early. I think he was going to get there anyway because of the trajectory of the franchise under his leadership. But from a weakness standpoint, it's okay. What do championship caliber coaches do? Right? What do they do? And I think what it is is that championship caliber coaches either A, consistently make good decisions in high leverage situations. Now, this is important. All coaches make bad decisions in high leverage situations. All of them. Like, that happens all the time. Just watch the NFL, right? Great coaches, great programs make bad decisions in those moments. But they make them frequently right, and they lean into the strength of their team. And that's the thing. When those moments happen, you need to lean into the thing that you do best. And right now, what Sean McDermott is doing is he's leaning into the thing that is objectively worse than the thing he should be leaning into. He is not leaning into the franchise quarterback. But Andy Reid's clock management has been under fire for 20 years. Yep. People have been yelling, but he will always lean into Patrick Mahomes. He always leaned into Donovan McNabb, right? Philadelphia fans will still talk about fourth and 25 and Freddie Mitchell. Yep. And because why you, you leaned into Donovan McNabb, even though your clock stuff is a mess. It's, it's always been a mess. His game management has been criticized completely fairly for years, but he leans into the strength of his team. And that comes from the fact that Andy Reid is intrinsically an offensive minded guy. So it's easier for him to lean into something he understands more. And that's where the question with McDermott comes in. Can he lean into the offense when he's not wired that way naturally? That's the discussion I think that's important to be had around Sean McDermott. Well, listen, I want to lump in Brandon Bean to this conversation. So stick with us. But before we get there, you shouldn't have to worry when you're buying tickets to your next big event. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater events near you. They've got killer deals on last-minute tickets, all-in prices, views from your seat, and a best price guarantee. I mean, simply put, game time takes the guesswork out of buying tickets. The app is awesome, super easy to navigate. They give you flash deals as well. I've really enjoyed that. Plus, they send the tickets right to your phone. You don't have to dig through emails to find them. They come right 
to your phone. So snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code LOCKEDONNFL for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code LOCKEDONNFL for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, Bruce, I said I wanted to mention and or really introduce Brandon Bean into this conversation uh, through the same lens as Sean McDermott. Was he the right GM at the right time to come alongside Sean McDermott and build the culture and lay the foundation, but not necessarily the right GM for right now? Where does Brandon Bean fall into this entire conversation, and what's your outlook on him moving forward as the guy who controls the roster? I am of the opinion that the role of a general manager is narrower than the role of a head coach. And as such, the gap between styles, like the qualitative conversations that we're having about Mm -hmm. Sean McDermott, that same conversation about the GM isn't the same. Um, When it comes to the GM, obviously people have, they have broad responsibilities, but not as broad as a head coach, in my opinion. And so when it comes to the GM, I don't think that acquiring talent for a team that is trying to break the drought is hugely different than acquiring talent for a team that's trying to maintain. I think economically it's different. You and I have talked about this in the past, that it's more important to hit on draft picks as you get farther into your life cycle because you need to replace players because you can't just re-sign everybody for market. And the reason you can't re-sign everybody for market, we're going to get into this later when it comes to pass catchers, I promise you, because you can't re-sign everybody for market because the going rate for a reasonable player is way higher than your ability is to replace them in the draft. So for me, when I look at Brandon Bean, if you can identify talent, you can identify talent. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the thing that would cause a GM to be someone who was good at one phase of life cycle and not good at another is if you could identify a franchise quarterback and that was only thing you hit out. And I don't think that's true. I think Mm -hmm. that we were critical of Brandon Bean in the offseason. I think we were reasonably critical for not quite as many home runs, lots of singles, lots of doubles. But all of a sudden, the narrative is a little different now. Ed Oliver's having the best year of his career. Terrell Bernard is breaking out. We, you know, Khalil Shakir has become a valuable player. I think that the conversation around AJ Epinesa is different. And so for me, I don't think Brandon Bean from a stylistic standpoint can be delineated into someone who was good for a team that was trying to get up off the mat, but isn't good now. If you can identify talent, you can identify talent. I think if you can sign reasonable free agents, you can sign reasonable free agents. And as such, I think that's translatable to different phases in a life cycle of a team. Well, we we know, according to Tim Graham, that Sean McDermott's not going anywhere. That was my suspicion. I'm pretty sure it was your suspicion as well, even before that report. The report came out, and so all my energy towards thinking about replacing Sean McDermott has really evaporated because I I believe the report. And so it's I think there's merit to the conversation. And talking about, okay, what needs to change within the same person pulling the, the strings, right, with Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean. But I I, I just, I don't, I, I think this is going to be the the brain trust moving forward, right? That's that's my that's my expectation. So with that in mind, let's do transition to pass catchers. This is something I really wanted to get into with you specifically, um, because I, I know, like, We'll get into it. You'll under, people will understand why as we get into the conversation. We'll start. I want to start with Dalton Kincaid. You, sir, are a major, major Dalton Kincaid stan. I know this because of the move that you made in fantasy, right? Our dynasty <laughs> league. You, 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 uh, you acquired Mister Dalton Kincaid, and your Twitter timeline or X timeline, whatever the heck we're calling it now, um, 
is very much a pro Dalton Kincaid account. Not that that's overly ambitious or anything like that, but what's, uh, you, you know, you're measured. You're more measured than me. Hmm. What's allowing you to swoon over Dalton Kincaid? The way Dalton Kincaid moves and the way that he catches in unison is something that is unique and special. One of the things that really makes tight ends as a general rule, not as targeted as wide receivers is that they are larger players. They are historically players who are run and then catch. You see lots of different, uh, different, very different routes from tight ends, right? There's a lot more stop routes. You have a lot less of the catch on the move conversations Mm -hmm. with uh, tight ends than you have with wide receivers. And Dalton Kincaid moves and catches like he's a six foot four wide receiver. It, it, It is, it is, it is simply unique. And the word that consistently comes to mind when you watch him play is smooth. Everything looks smooth. Nothing's fighting against something else. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, okay, I'm going to run the ball. I'm going to get to the spot. I'm sorry, I'm going to run the route. I'm going to get to the spot, and then I'm going to catch it. No, it's all part of one fluid motion. And because of that, you see a lot of this stuff, ironically enough, you see with Rashi Rice in Kansas City. So Rashi Rice in Kansas City is a player that if you watch him, the transition from I'm going to catch this ball to I'm now a runner is instantaneous. It's the reason why he has an A dot of like one last time, like last mm-hmm. night against the uh, against the uh, the Chiefs played the Packers Packers. Right. Um, it was just flare, 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 flare to Rashi Rice because the transition is so smooth. Dalton Kincaid has better hands than Rashi Rice, but that same level of smoothness is something that you can apply to any number of different things. You can throw tunnel screens to Dalton Kincaid. You can throw quick slants to Dalton Kincaid. You can have him run a deep over. You Because of that, you don't have to say, okay, we're just going to get Dalton Kincaid in stationary positions, right? We're going to just go ahead. We're going to stop route, right? We're going to go ahead and just lose, leave him as a check down. It's one of the frustrations we had earlier in the year where it was essentially just block and release, for Dalton Kincaid, right? He can do so much more than that. And so when you watch him do these things, you think to yourself, this is just, this is special. This is just special movement and catchability from a player. And so for me, I come away impressed visually with what I see from Dalton Kincaid almost every single week. And that's just, it's so rare to have a player who you draft in the first round and Halfway through his rookie season, you're like, this guy's a stud. Hmm. Like, just it's just so, so relieving to not have to go, well, we hope that year two will be a breakout. <laughs> oh, well, no, no. You know, usually year three it takes for tight ends to really break. No, no. He's good. Right now, full stop. It's a beautiful thing. I am fully enjoying Dalton Kincaid. I think he's exactly what this offense needed. And another player that has emerged is a second-year player, Khalil Shakir, wide receiver, a uh, ton of efficiency, making big plays over the last four games. He's your Buffalo Bills leading receiver, despite being fifth on the team in targets. Bruce, your thoughts on Kolo Shakir? I'm feeling very validated right now by this passing out your conversation because I was a, a big Khalil Shakir stand. Uh, before the draft, I tweeted out that perhaps I may have utilized the release of my wide receiver rankings a little too early because. When I was feeling sad, I decided to go back and watch Khalil Shakir film, and it made me happy. And so when 
the draft was going on, I, I launched a little tweet that was like a prayer circle with all the candles, and it just said Khalil Shakir in the middle, and then they ended up drafting him mm. in the fifth, and I was thrilled, and you know, was my, all my notifications were going off. Congratulations, Bruce. Of course, the other reason they were happy is because we drafted a, a cornerback in round one, but we're not going to talk about that right now. So Khalil Shakir, for me, is just one of those players who's just a professional, and so he he runs the route like he's supposed to. He's tough. He blocks. He catches. He's fast enough. He's tough enough. And so I don't think that Khalil Shakir, I know that this is going to sound very strange when I say it because of how big of a fan I am. I don't think you feel comfortable with him going into the year and just saying, oh, we're good at wide receiver too. We have Khalil Shakir. I don't want to do that. But because I think that there's a ceiling there. I don't think that there's a, a level of dynamism from Khalil Shakir that you're going to get if you consistently put him on the outside, have him win against upper echelon outside corners. I don't think that's a thing that you want to deal with, but I'm very happy with Khalil Shakir as the slot receiver for this team and someone who can play on the outside in a pinch that, you know, Cole Beasley couldn't really do that, right? right? Cole Beasley didn't have the ability. If you have a slot receiver who you feel comfortable playing on the outside and even, you know, 60, 40, you know, 50, 50 kind of stuff that gives you a lot of options as an offense. And we've already seen the ability of wide receivers blocking, I think it's come back into vogue again. I think it was really popular when Sean McDermott first got to the Rams. It's not Sean McDermott. Sean McVay first got to the Rams, and then we kind of forgot about it. And then this year, it's all of a sudden back in vogue again because you see a lot of plays that – I mean, look at what Puka Nakua is doing in, mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. They have Puka Nakua as a lead blocker sometimes. And the things you can do from condensed sets when you have wide receivers who can block, it just opens up the offense for you. And so – I also think it makes you feel a lot more comfortable letting Gabe Davis walk, knowing you have a receiver who can block in Khalil Shakir. I'm very happy to have Khalil Shakir on this team, and I would like to continue to have him on the team. All right, we're going to talk Gabe Davis, specifically Stefan Diggs here in just a moment, and of course some defensive back seven players. But first, I need to tell you about Jace Medical. I know we come to sports to escape from some of the crazy realities of life, but can we talk for just a minute about preparing for real life? According to the FDA, pharmacies are running out of antibiotics like amoxicillin right in the middle of the worst flu season in over a decade. That's scary. I can't imagine a more helpless feeling than if my wife or my daughter got sick while a supply chain issue kept them from the life-saving medication they needed. Thankfully, we'll be okay because of Jace Medical. The Jace case is a pack of five different antibiotics to treat a long list of bacterial illnesses, including UTIs, respiratory infections, uh, skin infections, and much more. This stuff could happen to any of us, so visit jacemedical.com and complete your physician encounter. It will be reviewed by a board-certified physician, and your medications will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacy at a fraction of the regular cost. It's never been more important to be prepared than today, so go to jacemedical.com and use offer code LOCKEDON to get $20 off your order. All right, Bruce, let's talk about a couple more pass catchers, and Let's do the Gabe Davis thing here. Um, I think everybody understands exactly where I'm at with Gabe Davis. Um, I'm thankful for what he's given this team, um, but I'm hopeful that the Bills do not pay him a market contract. Uh, you know, I think he's a limited player. I like the blocking ability, but for a guy that's you know really supposed to be your number two wide receiver, not necessarily number two option in the passing game, the variance, the limitations, it's more than I can accept, and I'm hoping for a more dynamic player. Your thoughts on Gabe Davis? The Gabe Davis conversation to me is exactly the same as the John Feliciano conversation. 
So it's about what level of player is your threshold for, okay, we need to resign this player. For me, that threshold is actually fairly high. As a general rule, when it comes to my belief and foundational constructs and it comes to team building, I don't want to re-sign players who are okay, like at all, on in any position that is going to be reasonably high in free agency. I don't want to sign them at all because at that point, the gap between the amount that you're paying them and your probability of being able to replace them in the draft is meaningful. I can, I can feel comfortable going into the draft going, I need to replace an okay player. I cannot feel comfortable going into the draft going, I need to replace a really good player because you just don't know how that's going to go. But for me, if you have an okay player, just don't resign him at all. Now, the John Feliciano contract was markedly under market. Like the more the more details that came out about John Feliciano's contract when the Bills resigned him, the better I felt about it because it was markedly low and it was able, able to get, get, you know, you were able to get out of that. I don't think you're going to see that from Gabe Davis. Look at what you've seen from the wide receiver contracts. At the beginning of the year, I'm thinking, okay, Devontae Parker signed with the New England Patriots. Is that a contract? that you're okay with Gabe Davis. And I was sitting here going, yeah, maybe I'm okay. Cause that was under market. I don't think Gabe Davis is going to get that contract. I think he's going to get meaningful contract because the wide receiver market has exploded. And if the elite wide receivers market explodes, so too do the classes and tiers underneath them. It pulls up the entire market for the entire position. It's not like, well, elite wide receivers are going to get 28 million. Oh, but okay. Wide receivers are going to get six. Like that's not how it happens. And so for me, I just don't want to do that. And I don't want to do it, especially because of the life cycle that you're in right now for the Buffalo Bills. You cannot be making mistakes right now. You signed Von Miller to a six-year, $120 million contract. Then you restructured it this past offseason to double down on those draft caps, like those cap hits. You can't really easily move money around at this point. So now is not the time to be making sure we absolutely have to lock up this player who's okay. So for me... With the deal that I think he's going to get, this is the same exact same phrase I used when it was time to resign Jordan Phillips the first time. I am not interested in signing Gabe Davis for the contract I think he's going to get on the open market. Now, if that contract on the open market ends up being really small, then yes, that changes my opinion retroactively, but I don't think that's going to happen. I'm with you on that. I think he's going to get a few bucks, and I wouldn't, I think he's a wide receiver for. So I would pay him wide receiver for money, not wide receiver to money. Uh, now, here's here's the fun part of this conversation. We talked about you trading for Dalton Kincaid. Well, in that trade, you gave up Stefan Diggs. And so just a little bit of a heat check here. Where are you at with Stefan Diggs and your forecast for him as the Bills' number one wide receiver? I think Stefan Diggs remains really good. And I think the thing that makes Stefan Diggs good is going to carry on until the athleticism starts to sap his ability to do it. Stefan Diggs is a good, not elite athlete in his prime, good one, who is an exceptional route runner. And so I think what we've seen from players like Cooper Cup, who is an exceptional route runner, right? Yeah. I think what we've seen is that if something happens that saps a little bit of your athleticism, all of a sudden your route running, the, the strength that was pulling you this entire time won't hold you up anymore. So that can be time. It can be lower body injuries. It can be things like that. So for just for, for, for the, for the heat check out there, just so you know, uh, I got Dalton Kincaid, a one Brian Robinson and a three. 
for Stefan Diggs. Just so everyone's clear, it wasn't straight up Dalton Kincaid for Stefan Diggs. So just so everyone's aware, that was the situation. But for me, as long as Stefan Diggs doesn't have something happen where all of a sudden his athleticism, which is good, all of a sudden becomes, eh, I think he his strength can continue to be his strength for at least another year. Um, when you start to get 31-32, I think the Chargers are having this conversation with Keenan Allen right now. Right, Keenan Allen is buoyed by exceptional volume right now. And he's a really good route runner, but he's also a size that Stephon Diggs doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, can Keenan Allen transition into a, okay, my athleticism is not quite the same as it was. I can't quite shake what I used to, but I can still be a possession receiver. What does Stephon Diggs transition into if the athleticism starts to, to wane on him a little bit? That's the question. And so for me, I mean, next year he's going to be 31. We're going to have these conversations. I think you can at least expect another year of elite production from Stephon Diggs. But that cliff comes quickly for people who are not elite athletes in the event that they suffer a lower body injury or in the event that it just it it just catches up to them. Well, and, and so my outlook, and I, I would align with your thoughts there, my outlook on this wide receiver core, these pass catchers moving forward is love Dalton Kincaid, excited about Kolo Shakir as a, as a meaningful piece, not necessarily a one, a two, or a three, but you know, kind of that next guy. Digs for a few more seasons. Gabe Davis walk, but you're still missing something here. I, I'm going to be pounding the table for an early investment yeah. in the draft for a wide receiver. I'm guessing you probably feel similarly. I do. Um, I, if the Buffalo Bills were to lose out for whatever reason and they're in, sh- in shouting distance of Malik Neighbors, I'm going to be having discussion because mm-hmm. I think he's wide receiver too in this class. I don't think they're going to be. Uh, right. You and I have similar views on Keon Coleman. I'm I'm not a I, I don't I don't get it with Keon Coleman that much. I think Keon Coleman and Kelvin Benjamin have uh, a shockingly large amount of comparisons that people are not prepared to have those discussions. I really don't think they are. So I don't think I don't think we're ready to have those conversations. But you know, I, oh well. Um, but I I do think that there will be. I think there's a reasonable chance you get five or six wide receivers mm-hmm. in the top forty, and um, I think that the Bills are going to be in position to be able to get one. And I will be having meaningful uh aggression <laughs> toward uh doing that just because you're you know you're we just had the conversation about cooper cup i mean how lucky are the rams that when cooper cups injuries started to catch up with him all of a sudden they have puka nakua right yep. the bills are a sprained ankle away from oh my gosh we have no receivers yeah like that that's that's the situation yep. and that's yep. not a situation i want to be in 100% agree with you on that all right let's transition to a little defensive talk here um, and this is going to be a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, let's start at potentially a low point in this conversation, and that's Jordan Poyer and Micah Hyde. Curious to get your assessment of them right now. I know there's a lot of opinions that you know they're they're cooked, um, and so right now and the future, and then just this general like safety position group where you've got a lot of decisions to make. You know, Hyde, Cam Lewis, Taylor Rapp, all expiring contracts. Jordan Poyer has another deal left, but the Bills can very easily get out of that deal. Are you kind of getting ready to reset this position group? And if so, like, what are some of your thoughts on the how? Are there players that you think can transition to safety that are already on the roster? Is it, you know, McDermott has a resume of of figuring out at safety and just trust them to do it? Like, where are you at with the safety thing? For me, this comes back to the don't resign okay players. It's mm-hmm. especially don't do it if they're old. 
Yeah. Um, so for me, if if you want to keep Jordan Poyer so you don't reset the entire thing in one draft, like I, I, I'm cool with that. Like that's fine if you want to do that. I, you know how I feel about Micah Hyde. Micah Hyde is been has been one of my favorite players on this team since the day he walked in the door. Micah Hyde and I are having an old yeller moment this offseason yeah. where it's it's just it's just time. Not because he's not an effective player anymore. He, he's, he's perfectly fine because you don't re-sign safeties that are that age who are okay. You just, you don't do it. So for me, it's it's time, I think, to let Micah Hyde walk. If they, obviously, if you can get it from vastly under market because he, he goes out there and the market is just dead for him, then sure, by all means. One of the benefits, I think, and one of the reasons why that ends up becoming a possibility is because the safety market continues every year to be vastly deflated. Yep. So Jordan Poyer saw it last year. He went to the open market. He was like, okay, this is this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm going to come back to the Buffalo Bills. If Micah Hyde has that experience and you can get him for back for one year and under $5 million, sure, yeah, let's do it, right? Because that's the way I was going to try and replace him on the open market anyway. I was going to try and utilize the deflation of the market to get a cheap vet who's smart, and savvy and yeah. underappreciated for a one-year deal to plug a hole while you draft someone. Because especially you've seen the way that Sean McDermott handles defensive backs and vets. Goodness gracious, is there a better coach in the NFL of finding some journeyman vet on a one-year deal and turning him into an effective player in the defensive secondary than Sean yeah. McDermott? So we, we talked about leaning into your strengths. Let's lean into this strength right here. That's what Sean McDermott does probably better than anyone. So that's another reason why I'm not interested in going out there and trying to hit the jackpot with a safety because you don't need to. You have the ability. You have this trump card where Sean McDermott can pull a vet off the scrap heap for one year, $2 million, and turn him into an effective starter. Let's utilize that because it's never been more important than now because you live in a limited resource environment. Let's talk cornerbacks. Uh, what are your thoughts on this tandem, Rasul Douglas, Christian Benford? Right, That's the Bills' starting corner tandem. And uh, it could be for the re I mean, of course, this year, but even next year. So part one is where are we at with those guys? And then bigger picture, this whole Kyrie Elam still here, Trey White coming off of an Achilles, and then Dane Jackson as an unrestricted free agent who I think the team really likes him. I'm not sure there's going to be a huge market for him. He kind of just run it back. And if so, like, how does this all sort out? I'm very pleased with Rasul Douglas and Christian Benford. I think Christian Benford has an opportunity. If it wasn't for some injuries, I think we'd be having a different conversation about Christian Benford. I really do. I think that we would be having a conversation about Christian Benford and Kyrie Elam the way that we were having a conversation about Kyle Williams and John McCargo. Hmm. That, hey, we may have whiffed on this first, first round pick, but this day three player came in and really made up for it. Um, and so... I think that the only thing stopping us from having those conversations is the fact that Benford's been banged up a little bit. And I was a huge Russell Douglas fan. I loved that trade midseason. I love the fact that he's got another year on his deal. Um, I think that that was meaningful value. I think it's a great fit uh, in this defense. I don't think you can count on Trey White. The, if you, I think if you have an idea and you think, okay, well, I really feel strongly that Trey White's going to come back and contribute meaningfully in 2024 i think you're i think you're putting your eggs in a basket that's too shaky um and there's been discussions about trey white to safety i i, I would not be interested in trey white to safety i think you you are maximizing the thing he does the most poorly uh, i think you have to be a strong tackler 
to play safety. Yeah. Um, and I think that people are just assuming because the athleticism will be sapped that that's the reason you move them to safety. You don't just move slow corners to safety. That's not how it works. And so for me, I'm, I'm not interested in that. It's the exact same reason why I'm not interested in moving Kyrie Elam to safety. Um, because the reason why the assumption has been made that Kyrie Elam isn't a good fit in this defense is because of zone awareness. I am not interested in then taking that and expanding that zone that zone presence. Because if you had someone who was a hook zone, right, and he wasn't doing that right, I'm not interested in now saying, well, you weren't doing that right. Please handle a deep half. Like, that's that's not that's not how this works. So I don't think Kyrie Elm or Trey White is a good fit to transition over to safety. I would be interested in having that conversation about Dane Jackson if yeah. you can get him back at that market deal that we talked about. If, if you get a Levi Wallace sort of deal for Dane Jackson to come back and transition to safety to replace Micah Hyde, I'm good with that. Like, I, I would feel comfortable. Now, I still want to draft somebody there. I don't want to yeah. put all my eggs in that basket. But one of the conversations that we're going to have a lot moving forward is the Bills have a ton of day three picks coming up. And please don't burn them all to trade up in rounds one and round two, Brandon, because you need them now. Like, you need them for all these maneuvers we're talking about. So I think when it comes to trading Kyrie Elam, unless you're going to get a really good deal, he's not hurting anything keeping him here. Right. So, I mean, if somebody offers you a, you know, a, a, a rough four or four for him, maybe you go, okay, yeah, maybe. But if they're going to offer you a conditional seven, you might as well just keep him. Right. So for me, when I look at Kyrie Elam, he's not hurting anybody from a cap perspective. It's not like he's ridiculously charged on the cap. Unless you're going to get a good deal, just keep the guy. Let him keep, keep developing. You never know. So that's my my take on cornerbacks and the way it influences safeties. Yeah, well, I mean, look, you can bring that Dane Jackson and talk about him as a safety, but also you need a CB3. I mean, the, the Bills corners hurt all the time, yeah. literally all the time. <laughs> like you need to make sure you have another guy there. Even if you love Douglas and Benford, you're a snap away from who, right? So Kyrie yeah. needs to be that guy. And like, like you said, not sure how much you want to trust Trey White. Let's finish on this. Let's talk about uh, my good buddy, Terrell Bernard, who I had zero confidence in, who has shown up in, proven to be a playmaker, like a legit playmaker at the position. And that's sustained through the loss of Matt Milano. So where are you at with Terrell Bernard? Is he the quarterback of this defense moving forward in your eyes? Absolutely. And I never thought I was going to say that. I just, I just didn't. My, my confidence level wasn't overly strong coming into this year. There was one person at Buffalo rumblings who was a massive Terrell Bernard fan and just stand all off season long. And he is taking victory lap after good. victory lap after. And I was like, you know what, man, good on you. Just keep yep. going. Just, just keep lapping everybody else because you deserve it. You've earned it. And so for me, I think the best thing you can do to continue to see the best from Terrell Bernard is make sure you're plugging up your defensive tackles. Yep. I think if you want to continue to see the best from Terrell Bernard moving forward, please, Please, for the love of all that is holy and sacred, invest in one tech defensive tackle. I'm really pleased with how Ed Oliver's played, and I'm even more pleased that he was able to continue to play well when he didn't have Daquan Jones next to him, because that was a huge conversation point frequently around Ed Oliver's. Please get this guy a partner. And now all of a sudden, you're playing Jordan Phillips at one tech next to him, and he's still making plays. I mean, Oliver is playing out of his mind. I'm thrilled about what we've seen from Ed Oliver. If you want to continue to see the best from Jarrell Bernard, I don't think the key is his running mate. 
I don't think the key is his scheme. I think the key is get somebody in front of him, whether that's re-signing Daquan Jones, whether that's investing a high pick. If the first round pick is a wide receiver and the second round pick is a defensive tackle, I will be pleased as a pick and poke. Yeah, I, I feel that same way. And I talked to Greg Thompson on the episode yesterday, and he's kind of thinking uh, early pick on a defensive tackle as well. So that that would that would make a lot of sense to me. Obviously, it's fluid, right? The decisions will be made that will impact all of that. But as you kind of forecast and think about it now, that's kind of where my mind is at. Bruce Nolan, thank you so much for your time today. Always a, a real treat when I get a chance to talk with you. Also a treat when I get to listen to your podcast. For everyone, make sure you're following uh, Bruce on X at Bruce exclusive and Instagram. And of course the Bruce exclusive podcast drops every Thursday, part of the Buffalo rumblings podcast feed. Bruce, as always, it's been a pleasure. Joe, thanks for having me, man. All right, folks. Thank you guys for being here. We've got one more kind of bi-week discussion coming up. I'm going to speak to Nate Geary, the other half of the former Bruce Nolan, Nate Geary podcast, food for thought. We're going to have Nate on. We're going to talk, Josh Allen, the rest of the way. We're going to talk about the trenches. So make sure you don't miss that. Take a moment and be sure that you are subscribed. Would love it if you took a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day. Go Bills. And I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.